This is Listen to the Editors, a series of interviews with journal editors to unveil the trends in research for operations and supply chain management. I'm your host, Yuri Gavronsky. Today, we are interviewing the editors-in-chief for the Journal of Business Logistics, Professors Thomas Goldsby and Walter Zinn. Dr. Thomas Goldsby is the Harry T. Mangurian Jr. Foundation Professor in Business professor of logistics and chair of the Department of Marketing and Logistics at Ohio State Fisher College of Business. Dr. Goldsby is co-editor-in-chief of the Journal of Business Logistics. His research interests include logistics strategy, supply chain integration, and the theory and practice of lean and agile supply chain strategies. He has published more than 50 articles in academic and professional journals and serves as a frequent speaker at academic conferences, executive education seminars, and professional meetings. He is co-author of five books on supply chain management and logistics. Walter Zinn is professor of logistics. He currently serves Ohio State Fisher College of Business as associate dean for graduate students and programs. He previously served as chairman of the Department of Marketing and Logistics and as a director of the Master in Business Logistics Engineering. As the director of the Master in Business Logistics Engineering, MBLE, an innovative joint program between the schools of business and engineering. Dr. Zinn is co-editor-in-chief of the Journal of Business Logistics. He formerly served the journal as systems section editor from 97 to 2001 and a guest editor for a special section on logistics, marketing, and supply chain strategies in 2000. Dr. Zinn's research interests focus primarily on the relationship between customer service policy and inventory investment, particularly consumer response to stockouts, supply chain risk management, and the effects of inventory centralization and sales forecasting on safety stocks. He is also interested in logistics issues in Latin America. At Ohio State, Professor Zinn teaches logistics courses for undergraduate, MBA, and MBLE students, including field problems in logistics, where graduate students conduct consulting projects for corporations. Dr. Zinn also lectured in more than 100 executive development programs and spoke in logistics conferences and meetings in the U.S. and internationally. Dr. Zinn is fluent in Spanish and Portuguese. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Yuri. How are you, Yuri? We will start with a very brief discussion about the generals of the journal. How do you read the mission statement of the journal? Well, thank you, Yuri. Um, again, we really appreciate the opportunity to bring the Journal of Business Logistics to the OSCM audience and, and beyond. And uh, the journal just celebrated its 40th anniversary uh, months ago. We just uh, uh, unveiled our 40th anniversary issue uh, earlier this year. And so uh, we're really thrilled to have the opportunity to, uh, to again, share the journal and its background with you. Uh, the mission of JBL is to become uh, the journal of choice for original, high-quality, thought-provoking supply chain research that will make a valuable contribution to supply chain theory and practice. And so we encourage people to submit their best research that is theoretically grounded, methodologically rigorous, managerially relevant, and written in a clear, concise, and compelling style. And uh, you know that is the, the language that you would find at the JBL website. Uh, it's the language that Walter and I present routinely when we have the opportunity to present in a, in a forum setting such as this. But ultimately, we're looking for interesting research, interesting research that informs uh, fellow academics as well as practitioners uh, that uh, is compelling. And, uh, and it's uh, something that's rather methods uh, agnostic 
but something that uh, is uh, uh, fun and interesting to read that can actually change practice. How many issues per year do you publish? We publish about uh, four issues a year in the journal. How many papers a year do you publish? That would be about, uh, what, about 20 papers, give or take. And what are your current submission levels? How many submissions do you get a year? We get about 300 uh, submissions a year. That's about uh, how many at the acceptance level? Would be roughly 7% or something like that? Yeah, about about 6 6.5% is where our acceptance rate is running. And um, it's something that Walter and I are, are routinely asked of when you know, that acceptance rate is, is quite low. Uh, frankly, we'd like for it to be higher. Uh, it is a function of uh, getting more submissions into the funnel. And I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to talk about our review process in more detail uh, to come. But you know, our uh, primary mission is to, uh, to get great submissions and then to... Uh, steward those submissions through the review process and ultimately, again, fulfill that mission that I recited at the outset of our conversation. Yeah. And, and to that, I would just like to, to uh, add to what, what Thomas is saying. Um, our, our main objective is to publish top quality research. And, uh, and the acceptance rate is subject uh, to that. So unless we get a paper that uh, we think meets the standards of, of JBL, uh, we, will, we will we will not publish it. You as editors have a, a term. Do you do you have a, a period that you serve? We we do. In fact, uh, Walter and I are in the fourth year of a five year term, and JBL is actually uh, soliciting proposals for the next editor team. Uh, those submissions are due by August fifteen uh, to CSCMP, the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals, which owns and manages the journal. So you are towards the end of your tenure. What did you see as your mission or what did you try to see accomplished during the period that you were the editors-in-chief? Yeah, we try to work primarily on, first of all, publishing quality research that helps both researchers in the field to advance the discipline and as well as uh, have an impact on, on practice. But I think Tom and I have worked to... Um, uh, position the journal uh, as the top journal for supply chain management and, and for logistics logistics research. And to accomplish that over something that, that I think maybe later we can talk a little bit about it, we instituted something called the methods review, where papers are, in addition to uh, uh, the regular reviews that they get, we, we always get a method specialist that, that not necessarily uh, um, uh, reviews the substance of the papers to make sure that whatever method we use, and, and, and Tom's right when he said earlier that we are eclectic towards different kinds of methods, but whatever method you use, we use the methods review to make sure that it is state-of-the-art. Just as a bit of background uh, as well, I, we, we took over a journal uh, four years ago that was in very good health, uh, the previous editor team of Matt Waller and Stan Fawcett had instituted considerable innovation in the journal during the previous term. Uh, for instance, uh, the journal was uh, published by Wiley, uh, continues to be published by Wiley, but that was something that was instituted at the beginning of their term. Also, we were previously published twice a year as opposed to the quarterly publication cadence that we have now. Uh, they also instituted a host of uh, innovations within the journal itself, some of which we've maintained and others we've uh, sunset uh, in consultation with them, but the special topic forums is one example uh, where we try to get very hot contemporary research uh, in the journal. And uh, 
It's not uh, as if we have special issues necessarily, which uh, dedicate an entire issue to one topic, uh, but rather we uh, maintain our, our rigor uh, in the review process. And if only two papers make it out of an STF, so be it. Uh, if we can get five or six out of an STF, that's great. That would uh, largely dictate uh, an issue dedicated to a special topic. But uh, that's just one example of the, the many variations of, of innovation that Matt and Stan brought to the journal. And like I said, Walter and I uh, uh, picked up the torch uh, back uh, four years ago and have maintained much of that innovation. Also introduced some elements, as Walter alluded, with the methods review, which I, I would hope we'll have a chance to talk a bit about this afternoon. Did you implement any change in the organizational structure of the journal? What's the structure of the journal? Sure. So Walter and I serve as the co-editors-in-chief. Uh, we did maintain the structure uh, of associate editors um, and an editorial review board. We also have an editorial advisory board. Uh, however, we did uh, institute a methods uh, review board. Uh, and, and so that's the addition. Uh, that's the change in a significant change in the review process and also in terms of the structure of the journal. What would be the editorial process of the journal? Uh, I think it's similar to other top journals in the sense that we get submissions that uh, are either desk rejected or not, and then there we appoint an AE. Uh, Tom and I will select both the AE and all the reviewers, so, so we, we, we control that. Um, if it looks like we hear from the AE that it's going to get a revision opportunity, then at that point, again, Tom and I will select a methods reviewer which will provide a, uh, an, an analysis of, of the quality of the methods uh, and, and that's sent to the EE and then the, the EE at that point will make, a, will make a recommendation. It then follows either the paper is accepted or most likely goes through you know, two or three rounds until we finally make a, uh, make a decision. Um, organizationally, I should tell you that Tom and I do everything together. So we meet weekly. We make very quick decisions on what's next rejected. Papers go out for review very quickly. So we feel that that's very fair to authors and, and we tend to make joint decisions about what, what happens in the journal. So we, we, we physically sit together at least once a week to decide on everything related to the journal. You are affiliated to the same yeah, university. I'm sorry. But you are affiliated to the same university, so that probably helps the, the, the quick connection, right? It, it helps uh, with flexibility. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sorry, I, I, I cut you, Thomas. No, no, no. I, I was just going to, to add that I, I, I do think that that's a distinctive characteristic uh, of the journal, that we do not divide the work across locations, uh, that Walter and I do talk about each and every manuscript that comes in. Uh, there is an exception to that. Uh, I suppose that if something's submitted to a special topic form, uh, those papers will get directed to the STF editors, but we do have visibility. Everything is ultimately run out of the uh, the office here at Ohio State, and uh, I think this is an also a good opportunity to point uh, to another critical member of our team, Michelle Anderson, who is the editorial assistant. Uh, she is truly the glue that keeps uh, JBL together and uh, maintains our cadence and discipline around everything we do. And so uh, that is a distinct advantage uh, that I, I feel we have, and uh, hopefully the the readers and and submitting authors to the journal uh, can see some merit and benefit. Uh, when they do submit a paper, it gets uh, maybe maybe a quicker turn than maybe what you see somewhere else by virtue of Walter and me uh, coordinating things so closely here at Ohio State. Yeah, that's right. And, and if I could just very quickly, first of all, provide a very strong endorsement to what Tom just said about Michelle. She she really 
uh, makes it easy on us uh, by by her amazing organizational uh, skills. And 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 then the other thing is. Uh, uh, when journals have different co-editors in chief that work separately, sometimes decisions are not very consistent. They depend on individual editors, and in our case, that doesn't happen. We will, we will talk, and Tom and I will, will talk about things. So it doesn't matter who gets to be EIC in your in your particular paper. It's 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 all in the same because it's it's one team. So let me understand something that was not clear to me during your description of the editorial process. So. The uh, method reviewer provides a report, and this report is sent out to the reviewers. So the reviewer's job is to either agree or disagree with that, or and but mostly the the goal of the, the reviewer is to make sure that the research question is interesting, the the results are, are relevant to the community, and, and the paper is well written, and things like that. It it it, it detaches the reviewer from understanding about the method that is being uh, used in the paper. Am I correct? Uh, no, Yuri, not really. I'm sorry. Um, the, the, the sort of, let's call them traditional reviewers. They still look at the method. They look at the substance. They look at the whole paper. The methods reviewer will provide additional input to the AE about whether this method is being applied. If it's a simulation, for example, we have a method reviewer that is an expert on computer simulation that may not necessarily be a logistician, but it's someone who will assist the associate editor in saying, okay, this simulation was done right. This, or we need something, it needs these additional things done to be, to be done right. And that's just additional input for the aid. So, the, in fact, the traditional reviewer doesn't get the report from the method reviewer. That, that's it? Uh, in the first round, no, because then the E makes a call. But if it goes through a second review, then the methods reviewer's report is part of the package. So it, it gets visibility to all the reviewers. Okay. So I got it. So, in fact, when the reviewer gets the paper, it's already the the associate editor had his first look at the paper the ae had his first look at the paper and then he got a report from from the methods uh reviewer so that would be basically when the review when the reviewers are sent I'm, I'm sorry when the paper is sent to the reviewers the paper is already seen by three people at least so, so when a paper is submitted, just to, to, to recount uh, the submission process, and, and hopefully this will clear things up. So uh, our editorial assistant, Michelle, would be the first to see the manuscript to make sure that it is in the JBL style, that it was, in fact, intended for JBL. Uh, Walter and I would then see it, uh, or a special topic form editor, if it is an SDF submission, would then see it to make sure uh, that it is, uh, again, uh, a good fit for the journal, makes the desk decision. Uh, I'll point out that our desk rejection rate is running at about 60%, um, which is uh, higher than some and lower than others. I, I've listened to uh, previous podcasts. I seem to think that we're somewhere in the middle uh, with the desk uh, determination. Uh, once we determine that a paper will move beyond the desk, we are going to typically assign a paper to three uh, substance reviewers. And, and as Walter pointed out, these are going to be traditional reviewers, um, often within the confines of the ERB, but not always. We, we like to introduce new reviewers all the time. Uh, and so we won't have a preponderance of ad hoc reviewers. Uh, we'll, we'll 
primarily work within the ERB first, but from time to time we, we do extend uh, invitations beyond the ERB. And as Walter also pointed out, we're also going to identify the associate editor at that time too. And, and again, that's, that's something that's maybe a little bit different for us is that the editors here in Columbus, Walter and me, we make the decisions on the entire team. And also at that determination, we may start to say uh, that a given methods reviewer might be ideal. Uh, in some instances, we will go ahead and send the paper to a methods reviewer so that it can be done concurrently with the standard substance reviews. Uh, in other instances, as Walter indicated, we might wait for some initial feedback. Are we getting some favorable response from that first, second review that's coming in to suggest this thing, uh, it not only got beyond the desk, but it's got a, a good shot of maybe going further uh, and getting a revision opportunity. So we do recognize that uh, it is an additional reviewer and hence to the extent that we can have that review done concurrently, I'm talking about the methods review done concurrently with the substance review, um, that's, that's ideal so that it doesn't extend the, uh, the, the lead time on that manuscript. However, we will also from time to time uh, inculcate the associate editor in that determination as to whether or not a paper might merit uh, a methods review. Uh, something I will say is that uh, we have many excellent methods people within our field, and sometimes that methods person will be baked in to a standard reviewer. In other instances, it might be an associate editor that is a foremost expert on the, the employed method. So sometimes we don't necessarily have to have that, uh, uh, that additional fourth review, if you will, of the methods reviewer. Uh, it really depends on the nature of the manuscript and the methods employed and those that we're soliciting for input. Um, so again, that's a, that's a judgment call, admittedly, by Walter and me, but again, it's one that uh, is done centrally, and uh, it's not one person's determination, which I think is, is merited. Um, so the substance reviews are done. We usually have a 30-day expectation on those once a, an invitation is accepted. Uh, I'm pleased to say, we, my experience with other journals, I think we do pretty well with getting reviewers. We have a pretty committed society. Of, uh, of reviewers, our ERB and AE members are, are highly committed to the journal, and it's rare that we, we have to, you know, uh, plug in uh, reviewers for uh, lack of response or, or other purposes. Uh, we don't have to work them quite as hard as maybe uh, I've experienced in some other places, but uh, generally speaking, we like to get three solid reviews back, um, as well as methods input that then goes to the AE. AE makes a decision. Um, and then uh, it lands with uh, Walter and or me uh, to, uh, to determine the disposition of the manuscript. And, you know, one thing that, uh, again, we try to do is we try not to make decisions in isolation. Uh, we try to make decisions in consultation. Uh, we will sometimes talk to uh, reviewers. We'll talk to the AEs if we need clarification, if we want to arrive at better understanding of something beyond what we see on the screen in the way of an opinion. And so I uh, have uh, been pretty uh, encouraging, Walter has as well, of prospective authors, uh, anyone submitting a, a paper, uh, reviewers, AEs, uh, methods readers, anyone associated with a manuscript, it's, it's not a bad thing to reach out and talk to an editor. Uh, that's the way that we manage uh, this capacity is by being consultative uh, here in Columbus, but also with the parties involved in ultimately the disposition of a manuscript. So what would be the main reasons for desk rejection? What do you see are the main, main mistakes of the, at this point? Well, sometimes we get papers that were clearly not written for JBL. 
they are basically written to other journals. I don't know if they were rejected by the other journal first and then they got resubmitted to JBL. That might or might not be the case. But if we can see that uh, authors did not look at the current literature in the JBL, you know, previous authors in JBL might have had something to say about, but, uh, about the issue in, in a particular paper. So that would be a rejection. Uh, papers that are clearly methodologically fault uh, that that you can you can see right away that, that this is no uh, no chance. For example, sometimes we get OR submissions that are clearly uh, uh, a solution in search for a problem. So somebody thinks that that no, here's a neat idea and let me let me work out the math and then and then there's no substance to it. It's just somebody. Playing, playing with with optimization, so so we tend to, we tend to uh, uh, reject reject those. So uh, I don't know if Tom has some additional ones, but I think that I can recall right now those will be the two main ones. Yeah, that's I, I think those are are the, the primary reasons. Something else that we're rather keen to do, I, I mentioned it earlier, is to publish interesting research. And if someone uh, submits a manuscript with uh, rather inane, obvious hypotheses where you would actually be surprised if there was any sort of counter argument um, to the hypothesis that sometimes we'll, we'll send a paper like that back saying, hey, you've got an interesting problem here, maybe maybe a, a worthwhile data set, what have you, you know, can you, can you uh, up the ante a bit and, and give us something that we can, uh, we can take a, a little more interest, uh, something that's more compelling. And, you know, frankly, we've done that with uh, people that have had success at JBL in the past and, and maybe success uh, submitting work of that kind, uh, and I understand there's need to have foundational work, but uh, you know we're we're eager to get the most compelling work in JBL, and so we will sometimes uh, send a paper back. Um, yeah, the the reject resubmit is something we do use from time to time. It could be used in that that circumstance where we just think there's something promising here, a glimmer, um, give us a little something more, or give us some further validation, what have you. Uh, that's when we try to use the reject resubmit is uh, is pre-review. Um, and uh, that's that's a fairly routine um, determination that we'll make uh, to to uh, submitting party to say, hey, we see something promising. Just give us a little something more to uh, have a better chance of getting through a a, a favorable review uh, with our external reviewers. How do you see the hypotheses that do not confirm? For example, I'm also a member of the academy in the research methods division, and these guys are mostly from psychology. So they say 95% of the papers in psychology are, are the hypotheses are confirmed by the data. So you don't need to, to make the tests, right? If 90% is, is true, you just have to write the hypothesis and that's done. You, you are wasting money taking the empirical part. To that end, how do you see a paper that does not confirm its hypothesis? And these hypotheses should be confirmed given previous research. How would you see that? Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think that this is where the methods review comes in, 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 in an important way. I, I mean, if the person or the authors reach that conclusion, but they have done it right, they followed, they followed uh, acceptable methodology in a rigorous fashion, so we know how they came to that determination. I think it would actually make for a very interesting paper to publish because it, it is challenging accepted notions and it's done, it, it was done uh, in, in a methodologically proper way. Uh, if the author is just saying that without, without a lot of basis, then I don't see, I don't see a basis for, for publishing such a paper. 
Yeah, Walter and I are not running the Journal of Non-Significant Results, but it's a very uh, intriguing question. And uh, again, we are in search of the most uh, interesting research. And, and frankly, if you can, uh, I'm not encouraging people necessarily to find counterintuitive results for things, uh, because that could re- lead us down some uh, rabbit holes that just uh, aren't particularly uh, worthwhile. But uh, if there are some closely held beliefs that you can identify, you know, that key moderator that changes everything, uh, that operative situation, maybe that, uh, that, that uh, again, introduces something new, something that had previously been accepted um, or, or considered old hat, uh, we, we, would love to, we would love to see that. Uh, and I, get, I agree with Walter that, you know, we ultimately are going to need to be convinced that, uh, you know, you're working with an appropriate sample. Uh, and your analyses are, are uh, state-of-the-art, uh, consistent with our expectations. But uh, we're, we're really intrigued by papers of that, of that kind. I, I would suggest that uh, those things probably have a better chance of getting beyond our desk uh, than something that, uh, frankly, you know, uh, you, you kind of yawn uh, and, uh, you know, say, wow, haven't we read this paper, you know, three, four, five, t- 20 times before, uh, confirming things that we already uh, know and believe to be true. Is it possible that in the second round you submit again to the reviewers? You don't submit to the reviewers? How, how that happens in the second round? Yeah, so in the second round, we, uh, we're very intent to work with the same review team, uh, including the original reviewers, the uh, methods reviewer, the, the AEs, as well as the, uh, the EIC at that point. We're going to maintain consistency. Um, and... Uh, you know, that sometimes uh, means that we do need to reach out to a reviewer, you know, particularly if a reviewer was somewhat dismissive, maybe, of a paper in the first round and isn't uh, interested to see it the second time. Uh, we will reach out to that reviewer and say, hey, I know that you issued a decision that was not entirely positive, maybe in the first round, but we need to, uh, to keep you in the conversation. Um, obviously, the paper may not have been met with the same disposition that that reviewer uh, might, or even an AE uh, occasionally might have, might have arrived at in the first round. But uh, we like to keep the review team intact. And that's something else I'd like to point out as people might be thinking about submitting to JBL in the coming uh, months, uh, as Walter and I will uh, hand over the torch to a new team uh, in a little more than a month, uh, a year's time, I'm sorry, in, in 2020, um, that Walter and I will uh, continue to process manuscripts that are submitted during our watch. And I would expect uh, the next uh, editor team to maintain most, uh, if not all, the policies that we keep in place. But uh, we're going to do the same thing that Matt and Stan did when when, uh, we took over for them, which was, uh, you know, papers submitted during our watch. We're going to continue to serve as the the stewards uh, for those manuscripts and not say, hey, it'd be easy in 2020 for Walter and me just to kind of wash our hands of the journal and walk away. But we're going to remain committed. Uh, to those papers, whether they're in first round, second round, uh, or even third round, uh, to making sure that those uh, papers uh, achieve a disposition. That's right. I think Tom Tom's making an important point, Yuri, that that authors that submit a paper during our watch uh, should not fear that with the change, with the transition editorial team, that 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 paper is going to be have to start over or be looked at it differently. That that will not be the case. If if we start, we're going to take this paper. Until, our fi- until its final disposition, whether there's a new team in place or not. So uh, let me get back to, uh, to the editorial team. Do you aim at any particular configuration, any type of goals that you had when you were assembling your editorial team? 
we, we did not assemble a team from scratch. I think we inherited from Matt and Stan a very good editorial team, which tends to be a substantial portion of our, our research community in, in, in logistics and supply chain management. What Tom and I have done is we have added to it uh, sort of sort of up and coming researchers that that have have published with us and have done well. That was one goal, and the second goal is I think we added diversity a little bit. We invited more uh, women's and, and more women and more uh, uh, global or international uh, researchers. Uh, I think we made a, a significant push towards attracting more European researchers to our editorial review board. So I, th- I think we did not make radical changes. I, I don't actually don't think radical change is needed. We have a very good editorial review. We just we just expanded expanded to it a little bit. Some of my colleagues suggest that the first decision in a research project should be the target journal. I am not sure about that. I- but assuming it's true, what an author should think before starting a project for the Journal of Business Logistics? Well, if it's really good, solid supply chain research, they should consider JBL. Um, now, whether or not they ultimately send to us, I, I, I agree with you, as you were alluding, Yuri, that uh, there's maybe more that goes into it. I, I think, uh, again, um, we're, we're pretty open to different topics and, as uh, already mentioned, uh, diverse methods. And so uh, we're particularly motivated uh, to publish research in the field of logistics, subset of broader scope supply chain. But we also want to be, uh, as a matter of fact, we do have a subtitle to the journal. It is JBL and then the colon, uh, the, the Strategic Supply Chain Management Journal. And so it does help to underscore that we're interested in broad scope strategic supply chain research. But uh, with regard to those who might consider JBL, what would maybe uh, lead them to, uh, uh, to pull the trigger and send it our way is that it should be, as Walter alluded, in some way uh, a part of a conversation that we're having at the journal. Uh, and we have many different conversations taking place. Uh, and I think that uh, authors need to be thinking very coherently about how they're contributing to that conversation. Now, someone who's maybe new to the journal or hasn't been reading uh, you know, volume in, volume out uh, those conversations, you can get a sense for what we're pushing for by reading our editorials. Uh, those are nice, concise statements of uh, state of practice, state of research, uh, and where we'd like to make uh, particular pushes. Now, we're at an interesting point in time in that we did just recently observe our 40th anniversary, and I would say that if you really want to get a sense for where we are as a journal and where we want to go into the future, uh, issue 40.1 uh, is a great place to, to very succinctly digest uh, where we've been, where we are, where we're going. And I think there are some very compelling pieces, including an editorial that consisted of uh, Walter and me, but also uh, previous editors contributed uh, to that editorial. Uh, we also had a collection of papers that we referred to as the greatest hits which were the most cited papers in each of the four decades. And something I thought was really interesting about those greatest hits papers, of which our very own Walter Zinn authored one on postponement, uh, is even those papers dating back, uh, you know, Walter's paper, what was that, 1989, I believe, uh, the topic of postponement is still a very contemporary uh, topic in need of research. Uh, maybe that's a topic whose time might, uh, might come here in the future and Walter did, he offered a, a perspective that looked back, uh, assessed where we are, but also projected forward. And I thought that was fantastic that all the papers uh, in that series uh, did just that. And so um, 
editorials are a great place to get a sense for what's on our mind and, and what agendas we're pushing. Um, and uh, particularly this issue 40.1, I just again direct uh, your, your listeners to go out and take a look at that if they haven't already, because that's a nice compendium uh, assessment of where we are, where we're going. But, uh, you know, primarily we do want to be the foremost journal in the field of logistics uh, and, uh, and also uh, a place where broad scope supply chain management. So those papers that speak of uh, supply management and, um, and production, service operations, uh, information technology, uh, things that, um, again, advance the conversation in logistics and supply chain. We want to be in that evoked set of choice journals uh, that uh, somebody and authors would consider. So I would definitely add those links uh, for this editorial and, and for the, hit, the, the greatest hits of the journal in the show notes, so listeners can access that. How do you manage the journal in, in the month-to-month -month operations? What are your performance measures? Again, we're published by Wiley, so Wiley is very helpful. Uh, we, we do use the Manuscript Central System. Uh, which is um, uh, you know, a, a nice compository uh, of, of information, uh, and we can refer to that. Uh, as mentioned, we are owned and managed by CSCMP, the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals, which is regarded as a foremost professional organization. Uh, we report to the Academic Strategies Committee uh, on a quarterly basis, and so they have uh, metrics. Uh, they want to know about submission counts. They want to know about uh, acceptance and rejection rates. They wanna know about lead times, um, different reads on the author experience. Uh, they'd also be interested in reads on uh, the, uh, the larger society, uh, those who are consuming the content. Uh, you know, uh, impact factor is something that they do pay attention to. The most recent impact factors came out uh, recently uh, where our impact factor rose to 3.17 on a two-year basis and 6.08 on a five year. So those are moving in the, in the direction that uh, the ASC, CSCMP uh, expects of us. But uh, ultimately, we, we want to achieve uh, impact beyond what an impact factor would suggest. We want, we want people to be uh, consuming the content. Uh, we want it to be motivating them to, to do even more compelling research. Uh, we want it to be uh, consumed by, by industry uh, that can find some insight um, you know, they may not fully appreciate uh, the methods. Uh, they may uh, read right past those hypotheses, what have you. But uh, the managerial implication section is one that we take uh, very seriously at JBL. Um, and uh, it, it shouldn't be just uh, a couple of paragraphs way back on page 23 of the manuscript that, uh, oh, yeah, we've got to have this for a complete submission. No, it, it needs to be just as much thought and effort needs to go into the managerial implications as the research implications. Um, so we do take a, a very uh, a proud heritage of, uh, of application uh, into the journal. And um, again, that's, that's something that uh, we don't want to take for granted. Uh, and we'd like to see more research that, again, can help to illuminate uh, the future. So with regard to metrics, uh, they are, they are uh, plentiful. Uh, but uh, conceptually, you know, our, we're looking to achieve something that's rather uh, broad and sometimes ill-defined, which is impact. Uh, and I, again, speak beyond uh, impact factor. That's, that's one of many inputs that we seek to, uh, to manage. Did you mention the increase in impact factor, but how the impact changed over the years? I recall a time back, maybe 20 years ago, when JBL published a very different type of paper. It was more practitioner-oriented, and now it's more rigorous in terms of research. Uh, so 
it changed the aim of the journal somehow. I don't know where, in which point of the history that happened, but I compare the earlier volumes and, and the newer volumes for, from, for JBL, and, and it's a completely different journal. Where it changed and why? Do you know? I, th I think JBL has gone over the years through an evolution that, that many journals go through. Uh, but we have certain things that are uh, part of our DNA, as, as, as Tom and I refer to it, things that, that have not changed over the years. So uh, you're right when you say that our JBL has become methodologically much more rigorous than it was. Uh, papers are more founded on theory now than they, than they were in the past. But our DNA has not changed. And our DNA is that, that the research must be relevant to practitioners. You must say something that, that matters to practice. In the same way, the medical research must be rigorous, but you must have, at some point in time, you must help a patient or the whole thing is just, is just a grand waste of time. And, uh, and the second thing is that we remain eclectic about methods. So you will not hear Tom and I say, we prefer surveys, we prefer simulation, we prefer experiments. Um, the key issue is the research question. What is the best way to address that research question? So do you have a research question that matters? And then second, what is the best way to address that? So I think in a way we have evolved, as you pointed out correctly, but in, a different, in, in another way, we have, think, have and, and I believe will remain true to these two basic precepts of, of JBL's DNA. Any idea of the impact on the practitioner community? So that's, uh, again, an objective, a goal that we have. It is a difficult one to, to assess. Uh, I, I will say that uh, something that we do here at Ohio State, as it would involve things like promotion and tenure reviews, you know, to the extent that an individual can demonstrate that their research has had impact. I mean, certainly our, our dossiers get sent out to uh, peer uh, academicians, senior scholars in the field to evaluate someone's body of work. But to the extent that you can also underscore the, the practical implication of your research, uh, that can be very helpful. Uh, and that, again, that's something that's specific to the cases uh, here at Ohio State. But uh, we would like to think that JBL articles could make that kind of argumentation uh, to uh, submitting authors wherever they might uh, reside. And so again, that's just part of our DNA, part of our heritage. Uh, the assessment aspect is tough. One thing uh, we do benefit from is that uh, CSMP, uh, by virtue of owning, managing the journal, they have a host of publication as well as many different channels by which uh, information can be conveyed. And so something that we've done with a, uh, a sister uh, publication of CSCMP called Supply Chain Quarterly is to offer a research spotlight. And in each issue, they will feature a JBL article where they conduct an interview uh, with uh, the, the, usually the lead author uh, of the manuscript and talk about the essence of the research, what uh, the team found, and how industry can put that to work. And we've seen a very favorable response uh, to the research spotlight in uh, Supply Chain Quarterly. Uh, also, by virtue of uh, our affiliation with CSCMP, uh, they host the EDGE conference each autumn. And that's where our, um, our academic conference, the Academic Research uh, Symposium, is, is held uh, jointly with uh, the EDGE conference, which usually brings together about 3,000 industry practitioners. And uh, the doctoral symposium for CSCMP also takes place at that venue. So it's a great opportunity for academics to convene at the same place at the same time with the people that we're trying to influence. That's where we uh, encourage uh, young and old scholars alike 
uh, to identify uh, valid research areas uh, is to go into the industry conference and hear what leading companies are struggling with. Um, in fact, that is part of the doctoral symposium is to go out into the main conference and to uh, you know, sit and hear the issues uh, in, a, in a topical area in which you're interested and come back and talk about it. So uh, I think that's just demonstrative of uh, the, the industry academic uh, conversation that we like to, to maintain. And certainly JBL plays a role in that. Um, JBL is fully accessible to all the members of CSCMP, um, whether they're academic or practitioner. We no longer publish the journal in hard copy, however, so it's, it's only available electronically. But uh, to each and every member of CSCMP, they can access the journal. And um, you know, how we get it in, uh, truly in the hands of the practitioner, you know, that's, that's something, frankly, we need to continue working on. But uh, CSCMP is uh, very eager and, and willing to help us make that happen. The idea of the soft copy version of the journal. We had the same decision at the Academy. The Academy of Management journals, they are not uh, sent out for free to us anymore. At least they are not part of our membership. They are sent only to those who subscribe to them. I'm not exactly sure that's a cost issue. That's a readership decision. Readers prefer having them on PDFs. What drove the decision? I think part of it is cost, cost-driven. It's expensive, uh, particularly because when JBL was in print, it was sent to every member of the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals, so that is expensive. But second to that, I think it's a generational thing. Uh, people of my generation still like paper. Uh, I still print every, every paper that comes out in JBL. I print them and I put them in, in, into nice uh, folders and then I have it all neatly arranged in my bookshelf. Uh, I, if you can see behind Tom, <laughs> there it is. So we are of similar generations. Uh, I am not sure that newly minted PhDs in their early 30s, that, that that's how they do things. Many of them prefer to have things, not only in soft copy, but they actually want to have it on their phones so that they can read in that awfully tiny little screen. Uh, so I, I think maybe that's, that is the wave of the future, that not only for cost regions, but I think the, the way different generations uh, approach things, uh, that they might, they might think that be the two reasons that would, that would explain something like that. And uh, frankly, I, I, I don't expect us to go back. I don't see us. Printing, printing the journal anytime soon. Even PDFs, I like the PDF format, but in the long run, I see the difficulties of people trying to read the PDFs on yes. their phones, and I see that it's not going to last. That, that, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. That, that's, that, is, that is the future, at least until this new generation starts having eye problems, which is probably about 15, 20 years out. At that point, we might come up with a different idea, but for now, uh, they do fine with a little screen. Yeah, what's what's most important for us is reach, and um, you know that's something that uh, JBL in the last nine years and nine years is a very specific number because that's when we started outsourcing the distribution of the journal to Wiley. You know, by virtue of that relationship, we're in more than forty thousand libraries worldwide. Uh, the reach is, uh, is is across every continent on the globe, um, and so. Uh, that was that was instrumental, and, and I do think that you know, uh, as indicated, uh, economics factored into that. But to the extent that we could achieve better reach uh, with a lower uh, uh, cost threshold, uh, that was that was a, a pretty ready decision for the council to make. I think. And about the global reach, um, 
Would you have a breakdown of the downloads, for example, among regions of the globe or anything like that? Yeah, Wiley does produce those for us, and uh, we, we uh, receive uh, annual and, and uh, to the extent we seek it, uh, additional uh, insights on where the downloads are occurring. And frankly, that's something that does sometimes surprise us. You know, we are a journal that admittedly has a very strong North American heritage. You know, the research uh, sample frames are often uh, or were historically based in, in North America. Our readership was largely in North America. Uh, CSCMP certainly seeks to achieve a, a global uh, reputation and uh, distribution of content. That's very consistent with our own objectives. And uh, again, by virtue of working with a global publisher that has the scale and reach of, of Wiley, uh, our reach has been dramatically enhanced, and I think it continues to improve. Uh, something Walter and I, uh, as he indicated, with regard to diversity, we're, we're uh, recruiting um, members to the ERB. We're, we're soliciting. Uh, manuscripts uh, far and wide. Um, we do have regional editors uh, that are that are helpful in advancing the cause. Uh, but uh, you know, it is interesting to us when we get those reports from Wiley about downloads and to see uh, what topics are being downloaded where. Uh, it's it's interesting to see the reach that that we've achieved. We are seeing an increasing disparity in, in the places that are consuming. JBL content, we only want to further increase the globalization of all aspects of the journal, the issues that are being examined, uh, the, the, the researchers that are contributing, the reviewers that are lending their expertise to the whole process, as well as uh, associate editors. So that's very much a big push that we've made uh, in the past four years and expect to continue uh, working on the globalization of the journal. Something we could add to the, to the globalization of the journal is that every year there's an European research seminar that's conducted in Europe, where both people from North America and, and Europeans gather, and their submissions are uh, uh, reviewed by a, a team of Europeans that includes our, our European editors, uh, Karl Marcus Wallenburg and Andreas Wieland. And, uh, and that contributes, has contributed tremendously to the acceptance of JBL in Europe and as, as well as uh, the submission of, of papers from, from Europe. So let's, let's understand um, the big picture. How many downloads do you have in a year? It's over 150,000 uh, downloads in 2018. And that is an upward trajectory. That's a 13% year-over-year uh, growth uh, that we're seeing. With regard to where those downloads are coming from, uh, the largest category uh, would be others, uh, so outside the top 10 nations uh, that, are, that are listed. Uh, the United States is the single largest uh, nation at 18% of downloads coming from the U.S., followed by the United Kingdom at 12%, uh, Germany and China at 8%, and uh, the Netherlands uh, 7%, Australia at 6%, and then it kind of trails off from there. But again, about a third are coming from outside uh, of the top 10. So that's something that um, I, I think is uh, representative of uh, the diverse uh, nature of consumption around the world of, of the content. If your larger download comes from the U.S. and it's 18%, it's not very concentrated. Clearly, you have a global reach in your publication. Exactly. Yeah, less than 20%. Uh, and that's something that, uh, again, we get these uh, annual reports from, from Wiley, and it is helpful for us to see uh, the nature of trends. One thing that uh, I, I think we, we have achieved some success with their assistance is achieving uh, greater consumption outside the U.S. and uh, as well as the total growth 
uh, in downloads. So well, like I said, totally not, a little more than 150,000 uh, during 2018. So you mentioned that you don't have any special issues, but do, would you have any calls for these uh, the special topic forums that you mentioned yeah. earlier? We, we try to shy away from special issues because then there is an obligation to fill the issue with a sufficient number of papers. And because Tom and I are so focused on quality, we, we prefer special topic forums so that uh, uh, even we had situations in the past where only one paper got accepted, then it became a regular publication of JBL. But if we have two or more, then we'll do a special uh, topic form and, and publish publish papers that way. So we have a number of them outstanding. I don't know if uh, Tom has them handy. I do, I do. So so we have three open calls right now uh, that are open through uh, the balance of 2019. Uh, in the order of, uh, of deadline succession. The first one is on talent management and supply chain management. And this uh, has a guest editor team of Remco Van Hook, uh, Brian Gibson, and Mark Johnson. Uh, the submission deadline for that STF is August 31. And we're really hoping that we'll get a robust uh, supply of papers to this. As, as Walter and I engage in industry uh, conferences and symposia, the topic that we hear more often, maybe it's directed back to us, back to us as, in, as academics is, is the talent supply and how you uh, recruit, retain, and develop uh, talent uh, and also uh, managing issues of the multi-generational workforce that's, that's uh, presently uh, out there. And so we're hoping to get, again, uh, robust submissions to that STF on talent uh, closing August 31. Uh, next in order would be one that comes to us from Matthias Klump and Caroline Ruhner. Uh, in Germany uh, that uh, is focused on artificial intelligence, robotics, and logistics employment. Uh, so looking at how AI and robotics are going to interface with uh, human activities. And uh, that one closes on October 31. And then the final STF that we have open for 2019 is um, one on the digital supply chain, challenges, issues, opportunities. And this has an editor team of Steve Melnick, Sherry Spire Piro, Hao Li, Hans Aim, and Jandy Zhao. So a nice global uh, representation on, on that one, I think, is going to uh, get a very robust response. Uh, it closes on December 1, so the digital supply chain rounds out the year. We're also interested in keeping a regular cadence of these STFs, and we're accepting proposals uh, for 2020. So if anyone out there has uh, a topic that they would uh, like to uh, to, to manage on our behalf or just merely submit a topic that we can then uh, find someone to edit uh, for us, we'd be open to that. And in terms of areas that we wanna see more research uh, for which STFs might be uh, good, I think we've got good coverage with regard to new technologies, but anything around new business models. Uh, we see companies really struggling with omni-channel and click to mortar uh, as an example. And uh, business to consumer logistics is an area that we, uh, really want to uh, to capture uh, the notion of consumer-centric supply chains and changes in retail. Um, so those are other areas where we would uh, uh, be happy to, to have STFs, as well as routine uh, submissions uh, coming into the journal for, uh, for our consideration. So I see those uh, th three STFs, very, very interesting. In fact, uh, talent management is something that uh, I normally hear also from, from managers. Um, uh, when we, you were talking about AI, robotics, and employment, 
uh, one thing that struck strikes me uh, when you see, for example, the the news in the U.S. about the tariffs and the discussion of bringing jobs back to the U.S. in manufacturing, I'm not exactly sure that we can still bring jobs back. I, I mean, uh, is it possible with those new technologies simply to to increase tariffs and 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 make jobs happen again, or well, that's that's compelling. I, I think that's why we need the research to under uh, to understand this exactly, right? <laughs> Those are very uh, important yeah, questions. That's right. That's right. I would I would imagine that we might uh, bring some jobs back to the U.S., but they're not going to be the same ones that left. It will it will be different different kinds of jobs, but but we'll see. As as Tom said, we need some research on that. And, JBL, we will be uh, JBL will be glad to look at it. So um, I see that normally our research do not inform public policy, right? Normally the guys in 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 economics do a much better job than we do in in management in in um, educating or or at least uh, bringing uh, information to to public decision makers. Uh, do you see any any change in this um, trend? Certainly, and, and we're very open to it. Um, and, uh, you know, there is a series of work uh, that, that we have published in recent years by Jason Miller and colleagues that has had uh, dramatic uh, implications on, on regulations. And I'm speaking here about hours of safety regulations and the amount of monitoring uh, taking place. So uh, it's been about a year and a half ago that uh, the U.S. Department of Transportation Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration required that all commercial truck drivers uh, use electronic onboard recorders. And uh, Jason research, Jason's uh, research along with colleagues has, has uh, found some interesting uh, findings around uh, whether or not more monitoring necessarily leads to higher safety. Uh, and in fact, he finds that there's something of an inverted U-shape um, uh, arrangement there that uh, at some point uh, you achieve a, a level of monitoring that is, that is optimal, but uh, uh, even putting Big Brother in the cab alongside a driver doesn't necessarily make him or her uh, a safer driver at some point. And uh, I think that uh, that line of research is just demonstrative of, of, of ways that uh, our scholarship can certainly influence practice, uh, but can also uh, perhaps uh, shape regulations. I've, I've teased Jason that he'd better be ready to, at any moment's notice, to uh, to go to Capitol Hill and uh, sit in front of uh, uh, a panel uh, asking him about his research because I do think it's some of the most compelling rigorous research uh, on the subject and it's a very uh, demonstrative topic, uh, particularly when you think about 80,000 pound tractor trailers that share a common roadway with us and our passenger cars, right? So uh, anything that can enhance safety on the highways and byways and in turn uh, enhance, uh, you know, um, uh, our existence as a society, I think that's that. That's pretty compelling um, along the lines that we, we like to achieve with our research. What about mixing empirical and analytical research? Do you see any good examples on that? Do you have any ideas? You as editors-in-chief probably see a very large sample of papers that go through your journal and, and mostly, I assume, is a single method, either empirical or analytical. Any ideas, any suggestions, any examples of a good paper that uses both analytical and empirical methods? Now, I think you're right that this is, uh, it's, it's a very um, 
rich combination. And, and, and frankly, if we were to combine uh, methods, you know, we can often get at the heart of very complex uh, problems, and particularly those that are maybe nascent, that are rather new to us. And so Walter and I have been very much encouraging of uh, empirical analytic uh, combinations with these new technologies and new business models. And I will speak uh, to one manuscript uh, that I think is demonstrative uh, of an effective combination. Uh, and it's uh, with one of our own junior colleagues, Vince Castillo. Uh, Vince did a paper uh, for his dissertation that comes from his dissertation on crowdsourced logistics. And uh, it's a great example because uh, Vince himself uh, embedded him in a crowdsourced logistics arrangement. He, uh, he participated, he keenly observed it, uh, he understood the, uh, the pain points associated with it, and he then knew uh, how to model um, a, a crowdsource operation. And so, uh, uh, yeah, that's a great uh, a demonstration of empirical observation then to inform an analytical model. And so he then engaged in simulation with the aid of uh, um, uh, one of his, actually a team of his colleagues from, from the University of Tennessee that uh, helped to model that reality. And uh, I, I think it's just a great example of uh, empirical observation, uh, which is, you know, nice and, and interesting from a descriptive sense in its own right. And many people might think that that's a contribution all to itself. But to use that to then inform an analytical model, so it's not just a notional uh, concept, but something that's grounded in reality uh, that can then be fully built out, uh, validated, and uh, and provide some really rich insights. So. You know, that's, uh, that's one uh, of, of multiple examples, but Walter and I are trying to strongly encourage these kinds of uh, deep observation first, followed by uh, some uh, analytical uh, approach. And we think that this is the way that, again, particularly nascent technologies and business models can be vetted and compared and contrasted uh, by virtue of taking this um, hybrid approach. Wonderful. Yeah. I would like to add as well the, the link for this paper in the show notes because it's it's a very interesting topic. If you heard the previous episodes, I normally say to the editors that I, I have problems talking with my analytical colleagues. I, I, I don't know how to collaborate with them because of these different approaches to the, to the world. I'm, I'm not sure how to circumvent that. Yeah, I'm not trained as an analytical modeler myself. Um, I'm, I'm, I know enough to be dangerous perhaps, but <laughs> I have had some very rewarding uh, experiences um, employing empirical uh, analytical combinations. And, and it is when you can cross that bridge, and I, I've uh, been referenced at, at, in Dilbert speak as the idea rat. <laughs> I'm that guy that's over the shoulder of the modeler, and I'm saying, does this model do this? You know, and, and they're you know, uh, telling me yes or no, and I'm saying, this is what we need that model to do, this is what it needs to look like and how it needs to behave, and then we'll take the results as given. But uh, it can be incredibly rewarding. Uh, like I, I, I think you were, you were alluding, it's also difficult to pack so much into a manuscript. Uh, if, you know, most papers are single method and our manuscripts are, are growing in length. Uh, that is uh, something that Walter and I are, are trying to manage is to say the most with the least. But organically through the review process, papers do tend to grow. Um, and so, you know, we are very much encouraging uh, papers that, again, are willing to make those leaps to go out into the nascent areas that we're so hungry, where the people in industry need that illumination, uh, need the insights. Um, you know, if you look at different omni-channel options, 
you know, if, if you can help to illuminate uh, kind of the upsides, downsides, and, and even the economics associated with omni-channel solutions, that's gold. That's gold for the practitioner. We'd love to have it in the journal uh, to help to illuminate that path forward. But it is, it is difficult. It's difficult to get one method right, let alone multiple methods, and to, uh, to satisfy our state-of-the-art expectations. But it's yeah. worth the gamble. What did you think of online supplements to the paper? For example, simulation models or apps or websites? Yeah, we've, we've entertained it, uh, but we haven't uh, yet used um, uh, any sort of archive. Uh, there's su the suggestion that supplemental content, as well as the data itself, uh, could be uh, deposited at these locations. And, and Wiley, in the conversations we've had with them, they would be uh, certainly uh, open and willing to entertain that. Um, and so... Uh, thus far, we've not had a situation that couldn't could not be managed within the confines of uh, of the article, uh, but uh, certainly supplements of, of different kinds is something that we've entertained and uh, would be open to. Besides the supply chain quarterly, any other outlets where the authors could publicize their journals, for example, a blog or anything from the journal that you have for practitioners or other audiences. One, one journal that we do, uh, or journal, one blog that we work with, uh, Andreas Wieland um, has the SCM blog, uh, which, is, which is widely read, and uh, we will uh, leverage uh, Andreas um, at Copenhagen Business School for his insights, um, and uh, he serves as one of our two European uh, editors, and so that's, that's a good way to, uh, to, to make the world uh, know of our STFs, uh, as well as... Uh, uh, something particularly compelling happening with the journal. Uh, we do have uh, awards as well associated with, with JBL. The uh, Lalonde, uh, Bernard J. Lalonde Best Paper Award is recognized each year at the CSCMP conference, and that's another uh, avenue by which uh, the best paper uh, in the previous uh, volume of the journal is recognized. And, uh, and uh, of course, uh, uh, lavish cash prizes and uh, adoration of many uh, are showered upon the winner of of the Lalonde Award each year. So uh, there, and, and then the CSCMP, uh, like I said, does have uh, a host of channels by which we can make the world aware of JBL and specific content uh, appearing, uh, SCQ being one uh, of many. Regarding methodological requirements, did you see any change over time of these requirements in the journal? We did not change our requirements with respect to the methods that's used. But where I think JBL has, has advanced substantially is on the manner with which a particular method is applied, that, that there is more focus now on, on the quality of, of how the method is used, if it's appropriate, and if it's done. Basically, is it an appropriate method for research question, and is it done, is it done right? Is it, is it state-of-the-art? Which is literally a question that we ask methods reviewers. Is this a state-of-the-art application of this? Of this method. Can you provide an example for those changes? Yeah, as, as, I, as I had mentioned earlier, for example, JBL has over the years published a lot of uh, papers using computer simulation uh, uh, where uh, the method was reviewed by, by reviewers who also looked at substance. And in the past, we did not have a, an expert just on computer simulation that that not is not the one we use is not necessarily even a logistician is a person that that just does is known for computer simulation so so you 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 better make sure that 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 you've you've done this you've done this right and as a matter of fact we like to uh, encourage authors to have a co-author in some cases 
that is a specialist on the method just just to make sure that 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 the method is applied uh, uh, in uh, the state of the art of the method is applied would you cite any papers that you saw published recently in the journal that caught your attention because of the ingenuity in the problem or in the methods off the top of my head uh, maybe tom can think of one I think something that's happening along with the method discussion is one of theory and uh, where we're, we're seeing the theory method match uh, come into play and, and the level of theorizing. And, and something, uh, a, a paper that again was in our, our uh, anniversary issue 40.1 uh, earlier this year that I thought did a tremendous job of, of speaking to the matching of the level of theorizing to um, the uh, the methods that might be employed that I'd encourage people to take a look at this paper by Michael Garver and and this was a reprisal of a paper that he and Tom Menser wrote in the uh, 1990s that look at, at the validity of logistics research and and that piece uh, in the 90s was talking about how there was you know at, by that time uh, 25 years ago there was starting to be more theorizing more hypothesis testing making its way into the journal that uh, our reliance on surveys was migrating from being descriptive surveys to more uh, predictive in nature uh, with uh, richer construct validation and, and so forth. Uh, what Michael did in his reprisal uh, this year was to speak of uh, grand theory versus mid-level theory, uh, middle range theory, and then practitioner level, uh, practice level theory, and, and how the, the methods need to align properly, what you're trying to achieve in any particular piece, whether it's to confirm, uh, you know, uh, some variant of grand theory or to understand the nature of context at the mid-range theory or to speak to the level of application at practitioner level uh, is going to call for a different uh, unit of analysis and a different uh, methodological purview. And so, uh, you know, that's just one paper that I think is, is a, a very compelling read. Uh, what was fun again about that is that uh, you know when we invited the greatest hits authors to write these papers for the 40.1 issue, you know we really did kind of expect it to be something of a retrospective, a, a look back or tell us about you know the motivation for the work you know 10, 20, 30 years ago and and how that you know topic maybe has evolved. But what we didn't necessarily expect the real uh, surprise, a very pleasant one in all of this was how. They really helped to advance conversations that we're having right now in 2019. And I think that they're going to be highly consumed, highly cited, uh, each in their own right. But again, that Michael Garver piece is one that, uh, as you speak of, of, of methods uh, application, I think there's a very good message that links the method application to the theory application, which is something that all of us throughout operations and supply chain management are looking to find that right blend of theory contribution conducted in a relevant fashion. As Tom Menser uh, pointed out some years ago, rigor versus relevance, why decide? And uh, we really expect both in our manuscripts. And I think that that Garver piece helps to, uh, to achieve that, uh, that promise. Just one other thing, if I could point out, again, I did mention our heritage with surveys and something that Walter and I receive quite common is whether or not JBL publishes survey research. And uh, we are not out of the game of survey research. However, the bar has certainly risen. Uh, we do expect that uh, a proper sample frame uh, is employed. Uh, if we're going to make inferences from a sample frame, we need to be convinced that it's a, it's a, a relevant uh, sample. Uh, we are concerned about 
uh, all forms of validity associated with it. We are concerned with the employment of controls. Um, and so uh, that certainly uh, as, as matters like endogeneity have introduced themselves, uh, we're, we're certainly very concerned about these things. Uh, that said, you know, um, we, we ask ourselves whether or not a contribution can be made by virtue of an interesting question uh, addressed in a compelling fashion. And, and sometimes the answer to both of those questions is yes, when survey research uh, is used. However, we are seeing more and more often that surveys represent one of multiple methods employed in a paper that we publish. It could be used as that um, level setting uh, to underscore that a phenomenon is uh, germane, it is important, it is relevant, uh, in which case then uh, there might be further investigation of, of that phenomenon. It, it is also used from time to time as the confirmatory method, uh, but less so. And, and we have seen uh, not just uh, Walter in my time as, as editor, but also going back to previous editors, there's been a, a steady decline in surveys as the sole uh, way to inform the research. And uh, again, I think that's, uh, uh, we're, we're not at all closed door to it. We'd love to receive the manuscripts and, and uh, you know, let us decide if uh, surveys in isolation can get the, the job done or if something more needs to, uh, to happen. In terms of CMV, any, any concern uh, regarding the surveys? Yeah, and, and that's where, again, uh, surveys uh, are going to be used in um, combination with archival data sources or, or, or independent surveys so that we, we, we help to reduce uh, the common methods uh, bias uh, potential. And uh, we've seen some really great work. Um, I'll point to some of the work over the years done by Shashank Rao, who admittedly is one of my former students, who makes use of, uh, of surveys as well as archival data to, uh, to, 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 to blend and, and to arrive at its, uh, some, some pretty compelling analyses. Elliot Rabinovich is, a, is another scholar that makes really good use of multiple data sources, uh, sometimes employing surveys, but uh, doing so in combination with uh, secondary sources um, or, or multiple uh, independent surveys. So uh, yeah, that's very much concern uh, on our minds. And uh, like I said, the, uh, the bar is being risen, but uh, it can be cleared. Yeah, we do publish papers. <laughs> the, it, it's a source of confusion. The methods I've seen so far, I'm not sure how to apply them on surveys. I'm, I may be more scared of indigeneity than CMV per se. CMV, it seems simpler to circumvent with secondary data. Indigeneity is trickier. Yeah, well, they're the flip sides of the same coin. And um, you're, you're right. I mean, there seems to be a, a considerable debate uh, with regard to endogeneity in terms of how to, to approach it and how to, uh, to make, uh, make the, uh, the audience feel better about what they're, they're consuming. And, and sometimes, frankly, we, we shouldn't feel good about what we're consuming. But, uh, you know, something that Walter and I have been talking about, uh, a forthcoming editorial uh, that we think will be very helpful to submitting authors as well as our own reviewers is around the notion of what makes for a contribution. And as Walter indicated, we are open for business. You know, we are in the business of publishing papers, and I've never seen a piece of perfect research. So to the extent that something can you know, approach that perfection, that's what we're trying to achieve with the state-of-the-art methods, is for things to be as, as valid as they possibly can be within reasonable uh, expectations, <laughs> which sounds like a, a double entendre there. But... Um, Given the current state of, of methods and, and understanding, you know, we want valid research in. Um, it should be rigorous. It should also be relevant. So um, 
that's the message that we do want to convey to folks. And, and at first, when Walter and I did unveil this methods review, uh, there was a lot of, uh, there might have been gnashing of teeth, uh, our, our names used in vain, a whole host of different uh, references. And, and we did see a, a drop in submissions early in our term. And I have to admit, I got very nervous about this. Uh, Walter told me to be patient, that uh, you know they'll come around. And sure enough, they did. And submission counts have been on uh, the upward uh, trend uh, since that time. And we do think that our authors are taking greater care to make sure that they're employing state-of-the-art methods. And yeah, it may take longer to conduct that work. It may take longer to write it up properly. Uh, but I think uh, you know it's a subjective call, but I really do think we're seeing more rigorous work appearing in the journal. Uh, and we are seeing more collaborations with methods experts. And that's something that's been very rewarding uh, to see as, as we hear people say, hey, is it okay if we bring on a statistician? Is it okay if we bring on an experimental design person? Is it okay? It's like, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. We would encourage that so long as it enhances the quality of the work that's going to uh, be submitted and ultimately consumed by our reader, uh, we, we're, we're welcome to those. We very much encourage uh, the, those collaborations with methods experts. We've seen more of that. Um, in recent years. And uh, if I can add something to that, Yuri, I, I know that your podcast uh, reaches out to a, a significant number of people in supply chain management, many of them outside of logistics and some of them who might not have taken a look at JBL recently. Um, I would like to encourage them to take a look. Just, just I, I can't say grab a copy anymore, but just you know, go on the screen and, and, and look at a few articles and, and try to see with an open mind the quality of papers that JBL is publishing right now, because I, I think uh, people who haven't looked at JBL in a while uh, will be impressed with what we're doing. Any final comments? I think we've covered pretty much I had in mind for this interview. We have covered a lot of ground, Yuri, and again, uh, just very appreciative of the opportunity to participate in your podcast. Uh, Walter and I, uh, again, want to underscore that we're open for business. Uh, take a look at the work uh, that's out there uh, and, and become an active participant as well, whatever form that might take, whether it's submitting an STF idea to us, uh, becoming involved uh, in the review process, and of course, uh, submitting work. Um, uh, we only can work with uh, what is, is given to us. We are an entirely a volunteer organization at, uh, at JBL, and uh, you know, Walter and I uh, really rely on, uh, on the work of many to, uh, to feed this machine. And uh, we're proud of the progress that it's made, and we think it's only going to continue to, uh, to advance if we involve more people. So uh, involvement with the Operations Supply Chain Management uh, uh, SIG, uh, Special Interest Group at, at Academy of Management, is a great way to uh, advance that cause, I think. Yes, I, if I could just basically second everything that, that, that Tom just said. I mean, JBL is, is part of a community. It, it, it reflects the research of a community and it is an output for research in the community. So we're only as good as the impact that we have in the community and, and the quality of work that we can, that we can, that we can attract. So um, I am, and I think we are pretty happy with the progress that the journal is, is, is making and, and uh, we hope that uh, people who have not looked at JBL just, just take the time to take a good look at it. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and for participating in our podcast. I appreciate that. Uh, we are very thankful to you, Yuri, for giving us this opportunity to, to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. 
Listen to the Editors is an initiative of the Operations and Supply Chain Management Division of the Academy of Management. We post our interviews monthly in our division website. You can discuss any of the topics of this episode using our interactive tool, connect.aom.org. Using the discussion section of our site, you can also post suggestions for questions, journal editors you'd like to hear from, and requests for clarifications. You can also subscribe to our podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or with the Podcast Addict app on Android. See you next month.